Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn. That's me alongside media executive and the shell of his former midfield-playing self, Grail Hallett, as well as soccer journalist and Over the Ball's producer, Sam Griswold. Welcome, everybody. OTB is brought to you by Soccer America and Ticket IQ. Guys, hope you're staying safe and secure as we continue to hunker down in this ungodly pandemic that we're dealing with. Uh, so there's a lot to get over today. What are you over today on Over the Ball? Grail? Um, I'm over the racist idiots who are calling out Watford's Troy Deeney for not wanting to play during the COVID-19 virus because he has a five-month-old son who has serious breathing difficulties. So uh. the social media morons have been going after him, as well as Danny Rose, both of whom have to be happen to be black players, uh, for not you know not wanting to get out on the pitch and and go back to work. So I, I'm I'm over the utter lack of sensitivity being showed by people. Yeah, I think you know some people de- denying that racism exists. It's hysterical, or it's not oh, funny at all. I guess, goodness. but then you know also the whole cry about microaggressions. Well, this isn't. Uh, macro or micro this is just uh people who are jerks just come out and uh it seems to uh to bother them more when the person's of color you know of what course. i mean it yeah. just uh you know if it was uh, another player who was lineker or something they wouldn't they wouldn't have said anything sammy what are you over yeah i know we're going to talk about this a little bit later but um i'm over people complaining about the bundesliga broadcasts adding some crowd noise to the background uh-huh. <laughs> um, saying it's unnatural, disingenuous, whatever word you want to use. I mean, I, I, none of this is natural or genuine at this point. Um, so why, yeah. you know, if you have a problem with the fact that they're even playing right now, that's fine to me. But this is such a minor detail uh, that does not really seem to be worth arguing about. You opinion. you realize you miss it. You miss the crowd noise, you know, because it's like a training session. We've all been in so many training sessions, but these two world-class teams playing against each other, with no noise. It's just bizarre. You know, we, uh, as players, I think we'd love it, but um, that definitely generates more excitement. And certainly during my stand-up shows, I could use some false piped in laughter. It would be nice. Tell you what I'm over, guys. Uh, this, uh, this, this video of the people in the Ozarks in that pool, without, they were not wearing masks, no social distancing. They're in this, this fetid hillbilly water just sitting there, you know, you know, nobody's leaving. You know, they're peeing in the pool. Make matters worse, you know, dysentery and cholera and everything else like that. And and you just wonder, like, what is up with America? So just wear a mask, stay out of a pool for a while. And then, I think I talked about this last week: bowling alleys, tattoo parlors, and nail salons. That's that's what everybody's pushing to get open. I mean, first of all, bowling. Who bowls anymore? <laughs> My God. I, I have no idea what that has to do with over the ball, but I... Just what are you over? I completely agree with you. <laughs> but I mean, these are the people we're trying to say, you know, please love this game of soccer. It's all a bunch of foreigners playing kickball. I don't need nothing. And if you know, if you're so upset about a tattoo parlor being not being open, my God, maybe check your life, really. Can you wait four, three, three months for your, for your tattoo? Your, uh, your arm and leg and calf aren't going anywhere. All right. Uh, so anyway, welcome to another quarantining edition of Over the Ball. Today's guest, we have the incomparable Paul Gardner. He, uh, he's written a really great three-part series in Soccer America on college soccer, something that is obviously near and dear to our hearts here at OTB, at least for Grail and I. Sam sort of on the fence with college soccer. But, and look, there's a, there's a lot to, uh, to throw stones at with college soccer. It's, uh, 
it's got some problems. So, um, but anyway, with all that's uh, going on in the country right now uh, and in the world, college soccer programs are very vulnerable, actually in danger of elimination, especially men's programs. And, uh, you know, and as to their questions of relevance, who knows? So maybe, uh, so maybe Paul can enlighten us. He's been writing uh, about soccer in this country for a long, long time. And whether you agree or disagree with him, he is a fan of the game. He's very passionate about it. So I'm uh, interested to see what uh, he thinks, guys. Because that's all three of us read that article. We're all quite impressed. Um, some great soccer on. Uh, we've been uh, basically the Bundesliga. What are your thoughts, guys, watching the games? Der Klassiker. By the way, I love that. Is there a version of El Clasico? I love it. Der Klassiker. Yeah. I thought it was great. I thought it was great. I mean, it was just uh, two really good teams. I thought I was really impressed with Bayern. Um, and, oh, yeah. uh, and just getting back to quickly Sam's comment about the pumped in crowd noise. I loved it. I've got to tell you, for me, as an experience, it changed everything. And it just makes you realize, you know, the way they shoot soccer games you're not seeing the crowd much of the crowd anyway you're hearing the crowd but you're not seeing much of it so right, right. It, it just to me it it absolutely added to the experience and i think every game in every league moving forward should pump in their local they've all got audio from games just pump it in there it, it may so not let me ask totally you this is it is it pumped into the stadiums or is it pumped no into the broadcast? So it's only pumped into the broadcast and yeah. i you know the first time i saw it i didn't know i wasn't expecting it and i thought it was coming out of the speakers in the stadium which yeah been pretty funny because you know there's loud whistling for example when you know byron had the ball and didn't make sense but as a as just part of the broadcast, I think it's it's great. You know, you know what's interesting. I mean, if you get too purist on this, uh, which it obviously with both of you guys, it, it generates some excitement to hear that, that noise. I went to an NBA game, and my God, it's actually annoying that they play music, uh, loud music. Oh yeah. When the opposite team has the ball, when the uh, the you know, the visitors have the ball. And it was like, I want to watch the basketball game. It's well, and with the natural crowd it's noise. Too it's, it's too much, right? Well, it's, it's interesting because they did, they did an experiment in the NBA where they took all that stuff out of a game or two. Um, and the players hated it because it was so quiet. Because yeah, no one was making their own noise. Um, so, and it created this sort of, you know, like we're seeing now, this sort of like surreal environment. So they brought it back. So, so I think just, just quickly on the sound thing, I think what somebody's going to develop is, you know, cause as you guys were saying, it's not, the soundtrack isn't really choreographed to the action, right? So you're right. hearing stuff that doesn't, I bet somebody, um, some sound technology company comes up with a way to basically somehow align the kind of the pulse of the action. Well, they were doing that the in, the, in the Dortmund Bayern game. They were doing that. I mean, like sure. when Bayern had the ball, they had whistles and, you know, when there was a chance they had sort of like an audible gas. So you're saying they were, you were saying they were Someone actually was, manipulating. Yeah, there was yeah, a yeah. There was a crowd noise DJ. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's Someone good to know. I figured, I figured they had just looped in a, uh, they took like a previous, you know, well-attended, raucous crowd and just basically put that into the broadcast. No, it but seemed you... to be, yeah, it was, it was scored. Okay, you know, cool. Was on it. Hey, so guys, man, really impressed with Alfonso Davis. You know, Davis, because it's like, I watched him play against the U.S. men's national team. He was running by our guys like they were standing still. It was a man playing among boys. And what is refreshing is to watch him play, you know, at this level in Germany, doing the same thing, basically. 
Yeah. I mean, I think we should say Bayern won this game 1-0 on a really yes. nice goal by Joshua Kimmich, which uh, basically oh. sealed the league title for them. Uh, they're now mm-hmm. seven points ahead of Dortmund with six matches left to go. Um, but going back to Davies, yeah, i uh, very impressed with him. Um, he's also the only player on the Bayern squad who has started every match since their new coach, um, Hansi Flick, took over as manager in November, which is really, really impressive, just 19 years old. Um, yeah, That's, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't have enough good things to say about him, you know. Well, his, I, his ability to tra- – I mean, and I really noticed this when Bayern played uh, Chelsea in the Champions League. His, his defensive play – is is uh is really impressive and obviously the speed factor is huge because he can cover 30 to 40 yards or meters let's say faster than just about anybody and and i i saw him make a few defensive plays in that match that were just outstanding yeah i think you know i mean over 20 miles an hour coming back on uh one play to Getting Holland. Oh, was it? Yeah. 30 an hour. I couldn't do that. 20, 20, 20. Yeah. I couldn't do that in a car, but gotcha. So, um, (laughs) but you know, here's the thing. Uh, Usually a defender with wheels like that makes a lot of defensive mistakes because he can track back quickly. And I would think at this level that, that it would be exposed like a little with DeAndre Yedlin when he, you know, DeAndre Yedlin had wheels. Um, He would be out of position defensively and he could, kind of correct himself when he got to the premier league not always there was a learning curve there with davies i haven't seen that i mean he gets forward really well um really really well and then then tracks back so basically the midfield and guys are shifting over just to buy some time to till he gets back into position and uh, man he he there are they're a very they're a very disciplined team you can see that that byron works really hard they've got a lot of great players but all the great players you know, Mueller, Lewandowski, they all work really, really hard. And, all the good teams right now we're, yeah. we're talking about, you know. And Sam, I think he's only 19, right? He just yes. turned 19? Yeah, 19, uh, yeah. Could you, just one quick comment on the Kimmich goal. I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but it was just an incredible chip. If you get a chance for our listeners, just go on YouTube and check it out because usually when you see a, a player chip a goalie, he's, he's straight on to the keeper. And in this case, he clearly thought ahead of time before he got it what he was going to do. And he actually turned and just, you know, in one fluid motion, chipped the guy from kind of a, you know, out near the 18-yard box. But just incredible. And I love, you know, you just don't see chip goals that often anymore. It was really, really top-notch. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's ballsy to hit a chip shot. Yeah, I thought it was very, you know, audacious and bold. Yes. I will say I thought the goalie really blew it. I mean, he got a full hand on the ball and still couldn't keep it out of the net. So, yeah. I don't know. I thought there was a mistake. He didn't get a strong enough hand, that's for sure. You know, we're talking about Alfonso Davies, a, a youngster, only 19 years old, another youngster, uh, and an American, Gio Reyna, uh, Claudia's son. He came on the last 19 minutes, a little bit of impact, but he was out there. Yeah. Um, Timothy Chandler had a nice uh, late equalizer in the tie with uh, Freiburg on Tuesday. It was nice. He's on the far post. He's uh, he's our man. Uh, yeah. He's, uh, I don't know. He's kind of played himself in and out of the ma- national team, but perhaps he's going to get another shot. Yeah, I mean, he's over 30 now. I don't know if we're going to see him in the national setup again, yeah. but this was a really nice goal for he him. He looks family. different, though. Yeah. Do you see his – he looks thinner than he was. He looked a little too needy. Um, for my uh, liking at the national team. He's, he's leaner now. Uh, I don't know 
you know, what that says. I know he's battled through some injuries, so maybe he was, uh, you know, training pretty hard. But I was not a fan of his in the national team. He's just, uh, he's just played a little better. I mean, Brooks, Brooks is sort of the that central defender that uh, seems to be the, the top guy. But uh, so who knows? And then Weston McKinney, uh, nice header. Did you see that? Uh, yeah. Nice. Yeah, I had a nice goal yesterday uh, against uh, against Dusseldorf for Schalke. Um, Schalke have really yeah. been struggling. They've actually lost the three games since the restart. Um, but yeah, I've been impressed with McKenney the last couple of weeks. He uh, he was also took over as captain for about the last fifteen minutes of the match, which was pretty cool. Um, and is yeah. really in the running to be the next you know club captain. Just twenty one years old. Um, also just wanted to point out that he was featured in the Gazzetta dello Sport, which is the Italian daily sports newspaper, one of them. Um, oh, I read their, that every day. Every day their, I read uh, that. Too. In their new superhero series, which is this little like video section they have going. Um, and the caption they gave to him was Yankee muscle, German style, McKenny, Uncle Sam's hammer, which I thought <laughs> wow. was pretty good. So, a lot. you know, Italian is known for being, you know, rather prosy and, and stuff. But um, that, it, isn't that a lot nicer than he's really athletic? I mean, yeah. yeah, you're right. Work a little harder. Work a little harder. And he hustles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Sam, I was I was hoping to see a little bit more of uh, a, a rivalry or a showdown between Holland and uh, Lewandowski in that match, but that never really materialized. I, I thought Bayern did a really good job on Holland. I mean, they just they, they they gave them so little room all over the pitch, frankly, mm -hmm. and Holland looked a little frustrated. Yeah, he didn't get a lot of looks. I mean, that being said, he did have a shot that was clearly blocked by the arm of Jerome Boateng, mm. who was kind of falling over. And I agree that uh, that wing, that chicken wing, looked like it came out, right? Yeah, it I looked mean, like he kind of put it out there. I was very surprised it didn't even get reviewed um, oh. by VAR, yeah. but yeah, exactly. All right, so what do you think about the um, – because I've enjoyed the games. I really have. Um, the, announcers, the announcers, the uh, announcers, so-so. Yeah. Thoughts? So I, I, I think the Bundesliga has been very well presented. I mean, we're not getting the Fox broadcast. I think we're getting the British broadcast directly piped mm -hmm. in. Um, and I think they've done a really good job. I really like that they have an actual German color commentator. I know you're not going to like this, Kevin, but, um, <laughs> you know, he's obviously speaking English, but I think it lends it a sort of authenticity that I really like. Um, and I think there's a lot to be gained from, you know, the language of the game and other languages and other cultures. Uh, I thought it was really interesting. You described, you know, Byron's high press as four checking at one point, which is not a term we use in soccer, but um, it's a hockey I term, yeah. yeah, I think it can be enlightening and, and just kind of a cool way to learn more about the game. So I think it's been really, you, you know, that's so funny, Stan, because when I would use sort of American terminology with certain things, English coaches would be like, would laugh. I said, you know, it's like the full court press on these guys. Like, why is it full court press? Please. It's like, yeah. all right, it's a term that Americans can understand. I, I actually don't, like the German announcer. I like the fact that, like you said, they say the names correctly. They know the league yeah. well. But there's something about a person when they're second language, they're, they're doing coverage in second language, it loses the subtlety. The it's a bit of a struggle. It's a bit of a struggle yeah. for them to say what they really want to say. So they default to something that, to me, sounds more simplistic. That, that's my only issue. Right. And, and yeah. it's almost like, you know, I've seen Eddie Izzard do stand up in French. It's like, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't quite <laughs> literally I, translate. I, I thought your stand up routine in German when you were over in Hamburg <laughs> oh, was fantastic. 
Das ist gut, jawohl, everyone. I think these league, like all these other leagues besides the Premier League are in a tough spot because, you know, the Bundesliga is really pushing its sort of football as it should be, you know, slogan, really trying to take advantage of the spotlight that it has right now. Um, and it's very clear that it wants to rival the Premier League. But I just, you know, because it's in a different language, I just think they're never going to get there, right? right I mean, right. anyone right. who speaks English can, you know, immediately be plugged into the real, authentic Premier League. You can follow the news, you can listen to the interviews, um, which just will never happen with any other league. So I, yeah, I think this, you know, provides some sort of in. And yeah. most of the players in the Premier League don't even, you know, are speak another language besides uh, English as their first I, I love I love seeing these players who I, you know, normally would probably just see in Champions League matches. Mm. That would be my exposure to them. And, uh, right. you know, I've the two times I've seen Bayern in the past couple months, as I said against, you know, in that first leg against Chelsea and in this match, I'm like, I am really impressed with them. I'm mm. like, this is a top, they are a top five team in the world again. Mm-hmm. Um with with all those pieces they have and uh so anyway i've enjoyed it you know it's interesting uh you talk about you know this land of immigrants that we live in america they the basically the immigrants that had the easiest time assimilating in this country were the having the ability to speak english obviously the english the irish the scottish the welsh you know coming here so um i don't know what that means guys in any respect but <laughs> well, uh, no, i just but sorry to throw that out there but speaking of paul's paul's series which we're going to talk about later i mean he talks about how you know we've always given deference to the englishman the scotsman you know in terms of teaching us how to play the game and you know going back to the color commentary the sort of traditional color commentator on a, a football match is a scottish guy and you know right. i i don't think of scots as being that technical or that tactical or really knowing much about the game. So I don't know why we have to hear it. Barely any in the Premier League now, maybe Robinson, but. Um, yeah, know. there aren't. There, no, it, yeah, there's definitely been a, a dip in that for sure. Hey, so, but speaking of the EPL, uh, progress with Project Restart as clubs agree to phase two, which includes tackling and training. So, Grail, you wouldn't be able to train with them. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't, but I'd... uh, (laughs) I'd, That would have been more for Sam, I think, maybe. I'm not sure. (laughs) So, yeah, so they're getting closer. Uh, Now they're looking at June 19th or the 26th, probably, for the restart. You still have certain players. You know, I mentioned at the top, uh, Troy Deeney, you've got people like Danny Rose, uh, Conte with Chelsea. They just don't, they don't feel comfortable. Um, so, uh, but, uh, don't but blame them, man. no, I don't blame them at all. And people they saw that, to, they saw that, uh, footage from the Ozarks as well. Yeah, they, they, people you know. just have to respect their, that's their, uh, opinion and that's their, uh, comfort level. And, uh, but there's still the issue with the relegation that still hasn't been resolved. You've got, right. you've got those clubs just really, you know, at the, the top, the bottom six clubs just saying, hey, I think we should just get, you know, relegation should go away this year. Somebody, somebody's going to be unhappy and that's just make the call. That's it. So, Sam, um, talking about, you know, this is the, the effects of the, the pandemic. Um, there's calls for answers with Liverpool and the Atletico match. What, what's the latest on that? Yeah, so a couple of fan groups have, um, you know, been up in the pressure for an investigation into the Liverpool Atletico match at Anfield. I uh, can't remember exactly when that was, but, um, you know, apparently they've been able to trace a lot of the outbreak to that match um, and yeah. directly tie it to, you know, people dying. Uh, wow. So, um, yeah, I think rightly so. People are kind of wanting to know how much people knew about it um, and still let it go on. So we'll see how that plays out. Oh, so it's more about it's, it's more about a public health thing as opposed to Liverpool fans 
you know, not being happy with the outcome. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah, and that's the equivalent, Sam, of the match that they've zeroed in on that took place in Italy, right? Up in the Lombardy region or yeah, something? Yeah, in, in, uh, in Milan, yeah. Yeah. yeah, where they basically said they could trace X number of hundreds of people that got the virus from that yeah, And match. players, a bunch of players yeah. that got yeah. it. So uh, yeah. in other international uh, news with international ramifications, Newcastle Saudi led takeover, still in doubt as the WTO rules that the kingdom is behind the pirate satellite TV and streaming service. Is that really a big surprise? I mean, you know, that, uh, you know, they, they cut up a, they chopped up Khashoggi and uh, they were, Oh my God, no, we wouldn't, uh, we would never steal cable. We'd never steal video games. Well, so let's that. not also forget two, two weeks ago, there was the Saudi guy on the base, the army base who, who shot people uh over here who was uh connected to al-qaeda so the the saudi the saudi tentacles are all over the place and they're not very good tentacles they're not they're kind of problematic yeah i don't think this is surprising but i think you know with the world um trade organization weighing in yeah um, yeah that's bad news premier league in a really really tough spot obviously the argument was coming from qatar saying that you know we shouldn't be allowed to make this takeover because they were pirating their premier league rights and yeah, I mean, there's probably bigger, more concerning issues at play, but I don't know. This is going to be a tough one. To- no, yeah, but I, I think I like this because soccer is a worldwide game. You need to be within the rules as a country. And Saudi yeah. Arabia, that guy, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, it's like he's doing whatever he wants. I mean, he kidnapped his own family, for God's sakes, put him in that hotel, chopped up Khashoggi, you know, doing all kinds of bombing. I mean, if, if a thing like soccer, if you, you, you have to play by rules, otherwise you don't get – put into the club and the fact that uh, they do all this stuff. I love the fact that you say, no, man, you, you can't just do what you want and then just buy a team. And I love the fact it's almost like when saying with the world cup, if you have, you know, these construction workers who are dying, you're FIFA. You have the ability to go in there and go, we'll take this game away from you if you do not treat these people well. Well, and it's a big deal. If you're, you know, being sports played a lot of money for those rights fees and you've got somebody basically is just, you know, going around that. It'd be like somebody pirating Sky Sports or pirating NBC Sports Network or something. That just wouldn't, that would not go over. You're spending a boatload of money for the rights and then you got somebody else who's just basically saying we'll, we'll send somebody up the pole and, yeah, uh, yeah. and steal the signal yeah it's like we we answer to nobody so you know what guess yeah. what you do you do have to answer to somebody yeah. sometimes i think we could use that example with a lot of people right now um one other thing that's happening is uh you know kind of sad news we're gonna be talking to paul gardner about this a little bit the state of of college soccer in the united states and uh it's not all good folks um and then on the, the heels of this covid crisis appalachia state uh is the second d1 school to drop a, a men's d1 program uh it was founded in 1962 and they were a legit power in the 70s i um was recruited by Hank Steinbrusher, you know, at BU, and he had coached at Appalachia State. And I remember reading an article about him in Sports Illustrated, where, uh, you know, you're intimately aware of this grail, you know, yep. with your dad's background, your background. It's, uh, you barely got a soccer article in Sports Illustrated sometimes. You had to really probably hustle to get it done. And there was a great article on him there, you know, basically down there, down south, built a program, built a powerhouse. Uh, and um, I was excited to play for this guy. So, uh, you know, it, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a concerning. had a great history. Yeah. It's yeah. concerning that this might be the start of something 
bad for us. And I, and, I, and I just think that any sport that's not one of the, you know, football, basketball, one of the big revenue drivers, uh, it might have its, its proverbial head on the chopping block. I just feel like they're, everybody's looking to cut costs and things like indoor track and, you know, squash and tennis and, you know, and soccer, unfortunately, gets lumped in if you're in the pecking order. Uh, you could see, I don't know, you could see many more. get Again, uh, you know, again, it's, uh, if football is the big elephant in the room. It sucks up millions of resources within a school system. They say it's revenue producing. Well, you know, one school brought in $3 million. They spent 17. So it's not revenue producing. Do the math, everybody. And then here uh, you have all these programs and all these other sports are, uh, are cut. So anyway, speaking of money and lack thereof, let's take a commercial break uh, now. Soccer America is one of our sponsors. Sign up for the Soccer America Pro membership by going to SoccerAmerica.com slash join. It's just $4.90 a month or $49 a year, and you get lots for that. Today's show is also brought to you by uh, Ticket IQ. Ticket IQ is the simplest, the cheapest way to buy tickets anywhere. All right, we'll be back with Paul Gardner from Soccer America talking about college soccer after this. All right, joining us now on Over the Ball, I have been reading this guy forever. Uh, I have uh, loved reading his stuff through the years, agree and uh, have enjoyed his writing. Sometimes, not all the times, but whether you agree or disagree with the man, uh, he absolutely loves the game. He's considered internationally as a sports soccer journalist icon, and no one, I mean no one, has covered American soccer as extensively as our next guest, Mr. Paul Gardner. Paul, welcome to Over the Ball. And uh, I hear happy birthday wishes are in order. Uh, yes, um, they are. They were a week or so back. That's true. Thank you for those. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. So the, the guys and I, we all read your article on the state of uh, U.S. soccer in collegiate level. And, you know, uh, Grail and I are older, so we've been through a lot of that stuff. And um, uh, are you are you both college soccer graduates? So to speak? Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, only one of us played D1, though, Paul. So, <laughs> all right. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But no, I, well, I'm, tem- I'm tempted to ask whether that matters or not, but I'll leave that to you. You can fight that out between you. It, it does not. It, it, it kind of, it does not matter. And, it, you know, what I, what we loved about your article is the hispo- historical perspective, because, I mean, you even mentioned it in, your, in the article's uh, three-part series. There's been a lot of ups and downs and a lot of mistakes. And I think, for the most part, mistakes. So um, talk to us a little bit about, uh, you know, I guess, your, you know, your first impressions, which were that Columbia game where you headed up to the, the tip of Manhattan there and, and watched. Yeah, Columbia that would play. have been, um, you know, this is a long time ago, and it's difficult to pin these things down unless I keep a diary, which I only do very intermittently. I didn't mm-hmm. for these things. That would have been in 1960. So you're, we're already talking 60 years ago here. Right. right. Um, and it was a sort of traumatic I mean, I don't mean to say I nearly shot myself or anything like that. It was it was comical almost, but it was a traumatic experience because the game looked so distorted and, um, as I say, almost a sort of um, vaudeville routine. And I thought, well, okay, you know, if that's what it is, I'm not coming back. And I didn't go back for um, ten years. You know, it was it was that that bad. 
And now you were talking back then, I think the Ivies had a lot of foreign players. So the level was probably not too bad, but it was still. Um, in 1960, I, I'm not sure that they did have a lot of foreign players. A little bit later than that, they, they started to collect foreign players. Columbia started to have three or four, uh, mostly English uh, players. And, That's true. Uh, you know, yeah, they, they, started to, they started to do quite well in, in the Division One tournament. In fact, they got to the final four one year, I remember. Right. And uh, well, I think a lot of the uh, soccer was um, basically a lot of the prep schools, um, you know, had done it. And so a lot of those athletes went on to play there. But, you know, when I started to play, you know, in the late 70s, uh, there was because of Pele coming in the NASL, uh, the start of that. And it suddenly soccer was on the map. Uh, but, you know, like you're saying, you know, my grandfather was from Ireland and I, he came to my first high school game and he watched me play and I thought I played pretty well. And after the game, I said, hey, uh, Poppy, what, what did you think? And he goes, I don't know what game you were playing, but it certainly wasn't soccer. So I said, oh, jeez. <laughs> well, <laughs> probably the sort of reaction uh, <laughs> I had on, on my first Columbia experience. It, you know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't encouraging, that's for sure. So, so, yeah, Paul, can you talk a little bit about that? Just some of your observations, because you talk, it, it's very entertaining in, in your uh, article about what stood out to you as coming over from England and what was so different from what you were used to. The referees. Well, it, <laughs> that, that becomes almost um, an observational sort of exercise, which in a sense has nothing to do with soccer. When you encounter something that you think is going to be familiar, and for various reasons it isn't as familiar as you want, the things you're going to remember over and above the order in which they stand will be the things that, are, that you consider to be um, extraneous or wrong. And that's what I remember about it, which is an unfair recollection, really, because they were playing with a round ball and it was on the ground a lot and they were moving it about and playing with the feet. All those things were there. Well, I expected them to be there, but the things I didn't expect were this business of two referees and I think they were playing in quarters and um, mm. so, some very odd sort of things. You know, referees wearing striped shirts. What was that all about? I've never seen that before. <laughs> uh, they, worked at, they worked at a footlocker. That's what happened there. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you something, a story about that. Some years later, I, I was doing a story and uh, <clears throat> I needed uh, photographs for it. And I applied to a um, photo agency somewhere in the city here this, this is going back to uh this would have been in the early 70s mm -hmm. and they sent me a bunch of pictures for me to go through and one of them um was from an english game featuring newcastle united now newcastle united wear black and white vertical stripes and here was the newcastle player going up to head the ball and being bumped about a bit and the caption read even the referee gets involved in this English game, <laughs> which was the reverse wow. of what I was seeing. I was seeing referees wearing Newcastle United. This guy was seeing Newcastle United wearing referee strip. Uh, you know, a matter of what you're used to. That's all. Yeah. Paul, you you, uh, you mentioned college soccer as specializing quote specializing in false dawns. Uh, yeah. What did you mean by that? I mean that there's always seems to be a promise uh, that something is going to happen and something is going to get better, and it doesn't. Right. That, that's what I, you know, my that was my soccer, my college soccer definition of a false dawn. It, it, it always looked encouraging, and I was always 
drawn towards and was very friendly with a lot of the guys in, at the Division One level who wanted various things to change. Mm-hmm. And um, I, they were all, without exception, I can say, you know, good guys. I, I got to like them very well. I may not have liked their soccer, but they, they were good guys. They, they, they were good at what they were doing. And that really was, is what it all comes down to. What were they doing? And, um, and, and was it worth doing? Um, at, at a certain stage of my, what I'll laughably call my career, I was very enthusiastic about college soccer. That mm-hmm. phase didn't last long because it became very quickly within a year or two, obvious to me, that um, the idea of pushing college soccer forward to a place equivalent to college basketball or college football was nonsense because um, the players were nowhere near at the level where they could come straight out of college and go and become a pro. Because everywhere else, those players at age 22 would have been playing pro for four years. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, I, I think... Paul, when you look back on the NASL when it, it, when it started, and I think it got up to, what, 24, 25, six teams, uh, where the, the theory always was that there was no groundswell support. Like, there was no grassroots kids playing soccer that were working their way up that one day could play in the NASL. So it was sort of like the pyramid was tipped. Now it seems the opposite a little bit. We, we have all kinds of people, all kinds of kids who are playing. Uh, yet it still hasn't been able to rise to the level. And I, you know, I think college soccer has not been a plus. It's been a, a detriment because a lot of the, the players who want to get better are not going to college. And, you know, part of my, I put part of it on the NCAA because they just do not seem to care about soccer. It's football and basketball, and, and that's pretty much everybody else is on their own. Uh, yes and no. Um, I think I've, I've heard it for 40 or 50 years the, the constant uh, denigration of the NCAA and saying mm-hmm. that they're anti-soccer. Now, to be blunt about that, I've sort of listened to this and I've looked into it myself and I find it very difficult to establish that their actions are, are specifically anti-soccer. I think they don't care about soccer, but that's not the same thing as being anti-soccer. Mm-hmm. It may work out in practical terms that the moves they make turned out turn out to be not very felicitous for the sport of soccer but you know to use them constantly as an excuse i don't think that helps anybody because there are a lot i think things that college soccer could do to improve its lot which in 50 years or 60 years that i've been watching them they've never done and if you have dreams for the future and all the guys that i got to know had these sort of dreams that they could change this, they could get a longer season, they could uh, play by FIFA rules, and so on. These things never happened. Now, you know, if you've got dreams and they last 60 years and you're still dreaming the same dream, there's something wrong there. I put in the article there, they're not dreams anymore, they're pipe dreams. They're not going to happen. Um, And then you've got to start looking at your basic structure there. And okay, you're back to the NCAA, and your problem there is that the soccer people are not in charge of this soccer operation. So the decisions will be made with, with other interests in view. Uh, you don't have to sort of accuse the NCA of being anti-soccer. You just have to admit that they have other fish to fry. And that's not going to work. It, doesn't work. Like it hasn't worked. And I don't think it's going to work. I, I like that. Uh, not, they're not anti-soccer. They're just... Indifferent, I guess. Is a, I, I, yeah, a, indifferent. Yeah. I mean, some of that indifference may swell over. Obviously, 
into hostility because if they do if they make a move, you know, and the first thing they hear about it are complaints from the Division One coaches, they'll probably end up adopting the attitude, oh, it's those damn soccer people causing problems again, you know, why don't they just shut up and get on with it sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that attitude will probably arise uh, within the NCAA. Um, and it's, it, it'll be a reaction to the fact that the soccer people, quite correctly, do not agree with some of the things they're doing. Graham, you had a question for Paul? Yeah, Paul, uh, great having you on. Getting back to your false dawns reference, um, one of the things that uh, you mentioned in uh, the articles was uh, the NASL draft and kind of all the hope that existed around that, which ultimately fell way short. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of kind of the expectations of how the draft could change the game? Uh, in terms of college players and kind of how that never materialized? Well, I think the, the essence of the thing is that the <clears throat> the structure for a a draft in a widely played sport in college and the, those better players going on pros was already there in, in basketball and football and was working very well. I think everybody would agree with that, even though it may quite possibly be illegal, but it worked well. The players were good enough coming basketball in particular in, in a small you know a small team you could have a player coming out of college who was good enough to be almost a, a franchise maker now you you didn't need to watch college soccer long to know that there weren't players playing in that sport who were anywhere near good enough at that level they were coming out of college at, at 20 you know they were all sp- spending four years in college and coming out at 22 mm-hmm. and in a very real sense, they knew nothing of the pro game. Nothing. They were naive. Um, mm-hmm. I watched uh, the, one of the first college drafts. I watched some of those early players who actually got onto the field. That was unusual in itself. And I mean, they weren't good enough. Nowhere near good enough. Now, no pro team is going to take a player of 22 and say, well, we've got to spend two years teaching this kid how to play. He's 26 when you're 24 when you finished. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not going to do it. So it's, it's not a good investment. Um, and the coaches in the NASL, most of whom, as I, as I pointed out, most of whom were foreign. A lot of them were English. And, um, you know, they, they did actively regard it as a joke. They didn't know who the players were. They hadn't the faintest idea. They'd never been to a college game, most of them. And they said, they said to me openly, you know, we don't have time for that. We're starting a new league here. We're desperately trying to get fans. We, we, you know, we don't spend our time going to watch college games where clearly they all thought that, that they weren't going to find anything. Um, yeah, it's amazing in a league where, you know, the EPL, where you, you have to have a certain amount of English players and, you know, you did anyway in, in other leagues where the United States, you had no Americans on the field. And they did have some projects like, you know, Jeff Dern and, and Ricky Davis at, uh, at the, on the Cosmos. You know, they sort of had these pet projects that they would try to groom some guys and then all those American guys would do all the personal appearances, but uh, that didn't work out either. Well, no, because it was, you see, a lot of it became um, what, I, what I would call sort of a promotional game. Um, mm-hmm. They were more interested in the image of the thing. And I think that was true of the draft. They wanted to come over as a sport. It was on the same level as the NFL. They could have an elaborate draft and it would be televised and there would be bells and ribbons and all that right. sort of stuff going on. And they did go through that. Um, and MLS continued it, even though 
in front of them, unless they were blind, they have the statistics of what happened to the top draft picks on the NASL draft. And if they were looking at those, and if they were realizing what they meant, they would never have started the draft on, on right. soccer I, terms. I, but they weren't looking at that. They were looking at the publicity value of having the draft. And that, I think, that was wrong. That was dead wrong on the part of MLS. They shouldn't have done that. It was a very cruel trick to play on the young players. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I, I was at those drafts. You stay in the main hall and they announce the number one draft pick or the number two or whatever it is. And up comes the player who he'd been sitting in the auditorium. There up comes the player onto the stage, into the lights of the camera and standing next to the MLS commissioner, his eyes as big as two post eggs and thanking everybody. And then they move him into the next room where we are, where the press are. And we're supposed to. <laughs> and, you, you don't know, know who he is. You like that, the play. No, we don't know who he is, but. But he knows who he is, and he knows yeah. that something big has just happened to him, and he's just been on the phone to mom, and he's, he, this is a big, big day for him, except that we know it isn't a big day. Now, doesn't right. he know that? What are they telling him? They're deceiving him. And, and a lot of this is deception. I mean, there's a lot of, there has to be deception still going on here in college soccer. What does a college coach, a top college coach, what does he tell recruits? Have you any idea now? I mean, he can't well, tell them this is this is the way to become a, a good soccer player. Everybody knows it isn't the, the way to do that. Well, I, no, but, you know, I, I disagree in the sense that, you know, you mentioned it in your article. I mean, I used to watch Bruce Arena's teams play at UVA and uh, they play, you know, a really they played a really nice brand of ball. They had, uh, you know, and then I even you could look at someone like contemporary like uh, Mike Noonan at Clemson where. They play, they knock it around. They've put some kids into the MLS. So, um, you know, so I think it's out there, but it seems to be the exception, not the rule. Well, yeah, I take a sort of wider look at college soccer and I, I will come immediately to what I think is an absolutely key sport. One of my other interests other than soccer is, um, is opera. I'm, I'm very keen on opera, not particularly German opera, but opera in general. Mm -hmm. And if I start to talk to you about the history of opera and then the current and all the best singers and so on there, and during that, and I'm sort of introducing you to it, um, I fail to mention Italian opera, mm -hmm. then you would know there's something very, very wrong with what I'm telling you. I'm, I'm, I'm an idiot if I don't include Italian. I mean, they invented the form and, and most of the best um, opera singers, both male and female, a high percentage of them have been Italian, and I'm leaving them out. What on earth is the matter with me? You're not going to listen to me. And yet that is exactly what college soccer has done. There is no strong Latino influence in college soccer, and I think oh, that is right. an absolutely fundamental flaw. You can't have soccer in this day and age, haven't done for years, haven't done since 1930 when the Uruguayans arrived in Europe and dazzled everybody, not because they were playing the sort of soccer the Europeans played and playing it better. They were playing a different game. Right. The Europeans hadn't seen this game before, this game with, with, with a heavy dose of artistry in it. I, I, think, we could have, uh, I think we could have taken the Uruguay uh, example as opposed to the English example, and we probably would have been better off. And, and by the way, with, with opera, the only opera I know is from that Bugs Bunny episode, uh, Figaro. So, uh, Sam, Sam, you had a question for, for Paul. Yeah, Paul, I um, really enjoyed your series. Well, and, you um, shouldn't keep on opera too long. I might, I might start singing, and you don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, this yeah, isn't, uh, oh, isn't an opera question. <laughs> um, 
I, uh, I wondered about, you, you mentioned the early days of college soccer and how teams from UCLA and San Francisco had this big Latino component to them and how, you know, how well they played as a team. And uh, so I'm curious that it seems like back in the day we had this sort of influence in the college game and now it's completely disappeared. So what, what's happened over time? How has that been ignored? Well, I, th- I think one of the things that I don't know that it's happened, it's, it's always been there, it seems to me. I mean, I've been watching, as I say, I haven't been physically, personally to a soccer game for years now. I have watched the, the Final Four on television regularly. We've had teams like Stanford, I mean, who just bought the hell out of me. I mean, I just don't see there's any advance there at all. Um, this, this is the sort of college soccer that has... Well, the sort of soccer that's come to be known as college soccer. Right. It's full of good athletes, It's but it's full of unimaginative good athletes. They're not bad players, of course they're not. They're better than they used to be. But, you know, if if you just watch the progress, if there is such a thing, of college soccer, and ignore the fact that the sport outside of college soccer is also progressing, um, I think the gap has got bigger, frankly. I, I just don't see college soccer is can claim itself even to be a part of the worldwide soccer movement yeah i I agree agree isolated itself and you know it's one of the ways in which you can i can prove that is the absolute the the dearth almost absence of of good latin players there there's no excuse for that and unfortunately i don't see how that can happen accidentally it cannot do in this day and age um, I'm likening it to what you see when you go to the college annual college uh, coaches convention, where a a Latin presence, a presence of, say, people giving clinics and talks, people from Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Uruguay, all those countries who contributed so much to the development of the modern game, and and indeed have contributed to a hefty proportion of the best players in Europe. They're much in demand in Europe as players because Europe yeah. tends not to produce those players. How can you leave that out of the equation? How can you be satisfied if you look around you and and you see college teams, I'm not going to say lumbering their way through games, but if you compare a heavy-footed game to a light-footed game, it's it's almost at that level. And right. it's not good enough. There's, 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 I would find it very difficult to make a case for college soccer as a version of the game. If, if we treat it simply as a version of a, you know, alternative right. version of soccer, then I think it's a dud from the word go. If we, yeah, treat, it, it, you know, it, sorry, if we treat college soccer as something that is an enjoyable pastime for thousands of kids and gets them interested in the game and helps them to make friends and this, that and the other, then yes, um, obviously uh, that, that that's good. It's good for soccer, not in terms of what's on the field, but in terms of its place in society. All of which helps. But let's not, you know, let's not fool ourselves into thinking that what they're playing, uh, a, is a good version of the sport, and b, is in any way a preparation for what they're likely to meet should they want to move on. No, but not the president. I'd question. agree with that. But you know, the, let me get back to my question. What does a college coach, a current college coach, what does he tell a kid? Division one school when he's recruiting. Any idea? You know, something that's going to make him want to come to A, college soccer, and B, to that, to that particular school. Um, that's not, that, that's not, that's part two. Part one is why should he want to play college soccer? 
Does he already uh, know he's not good enough? Are you going to tell him that? <laughs> yeah, you just tell him it's a great way to meet girls on campus. Uh, that's what I would pitch. Well, you know, no, you know, I'm going to take that seriously uh, because I think that seems always an attractive of, um, you know, of going to college anyway. And it's not to be, uh, you know, it's the not social aspect. Bad. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's, I mean, I, you know, I'd be absolutely crazy to ignore that. Um, but in an I education just, I, don't, I don't see you know, you, any I don't see what he can tell them in terms of of their future as a soccer player I mean yeah. you know is he just going to say well okay it'll be four nice um, you'll be playing in the, the sort of lotus fields of soccer it, it'll be um, it'll not be too hard on you and you'll get a damn good education assuming you're coming to a school that can give you that. Uh, There's nothing wrong with any of that, is there? Unless it purports to be something different. No, no, I think, look, Paul, I think that's what they're trying to get to, where it's, we had a a, a former head coach at Boston College on last week, uh, the women's program there, and she talks about sometimes the, you know, these kids do come in with unrealistic expectations based upon what their parents' expectations are, which and the parents Uh tend to be somewhat clueless at, uh, at times. So, Grail, you had a question for Paul? Yeah, Paul, one of the things we talk about a lot on the show is kind of getting to your point, which is um, when we were playing in college, you know, there was a year. Well, what, what era are we talking about? We're talking right about like in the late, no, right late, in, late 70s, early 80s. Right so, after the uh, War of 1812, Paul. That was so, uh, no, no but, I remember uh, it well, of course. Yeah, yeah. So, no, the, there, there were players that we played with and against who were uh, creative players and had license to be facilitators on the pitch and you know, the guys that were kind of playing the through balls, et cetera. And it just seems like that has gone. And I'm just wondering if that's a function of the fact that there's so much coaching and so much, you know, potentially overcoaching that players come in now and they're so structured and there is no uh, reward for being a creative player. In fact, if it doesn't fit into the system, it's something that's actually shunned. I'm just wondering what you think about that. Well, I mean, I'm not going to argue with any of that. I think that's, if that's the way college soccer has gone, then um, that would be a sign of it <clears throat> not being as insular uh, as I'm as I'm dubbing it, because that's the way <clears throat> the game throughout the world has tended to go. Um, that you know, it, it 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 might well be worse in college soccer because you're dealing there with. You're dealing there with an academic scene, if you like. Um, mm-hmm. You're dealing there with sort of things that don't come across the horizon of pro players. You're dealing with classrooms. You're dealing with study. Uh, um, it would be logical that um, there would be, uh, if you like, the, the X's and O's approach, things you can write down, charts you can draw, diagrams you can draw systems that you can discuss and so on there yeah i obviously don't feel very comfortable or very happy about any of those uh, at all um and i think it's unfortunate that um that in uh, in college soccer a lot of that sort of stuff has found a breeding ground i mean I, i'm generally these days when i go to the coaches convention i still go to that i'm i'm pretty the, appalled is the right word when, when i look at some of these clinics that are given. Now, listen, I'm not going to name any names here, but uh, I think anybody who goes to this can can add them themselves. You go down and you watch the demonstrations or you listen to the lectures. And a lot of them are given by coaches you've never heard of. And one of the reasons you've never heard of is because they never won anything. Now, 
I don't know. <laughs> America, to me, are as experienced as anybody in terms of consumerism. When you buy something, you want to know, does it work? I'm going to buy a car if, if you can't prove to me that it will move forward. Um, and yet, at the convention, there seems to be, uh, when you pass... Uh, you pass through the doors and enter the convention, you leave your critical um, faculty behind. You've just listened to anything that's spoken. Some of the things that are, I'm not going to say taught, that's quite the wrong word. Some of the things that are presented there are so nonsensical that you, you just sort of look at them and you think, you know, I'll give that two minutes, that's all. Well, you know, uh, Paul, the, the one thing is with soccer, so many people uh, as a player, you know, when I was in high school playing, you know, ball and I, and I played three where, sports where in high school. High school? in uh, Connecticut, on the shoreline of Connecticut, where if you played, you know, people would, were pissed at me because I wasn't playing American football and, you know, you'd be called, uh, you know, all kinds of homophobic names because you played the game. It seems like soccer used to be this, this sort of cult, this club where uh, we just tried to support each other because so many people were throwing stones from the outside. Um, you know, so it's, it's sort of that I think a lot of that has been lost as I think a lot of the young kids don't know the history of the game, you know, which you, you explain in your three part series here with the college game, um, the journey we've taken, but it's, it's definitely, it's definitely missed some opportunities there. Uh, Sam, you wanted to ask Paul a question. We got to wrap up, but. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just before we go, I mean, I'm wondering Paul, if you see any kind of hope for the future. Um, and one idea I had um, is just simply that there are too many division one men's soccer teams. I mean, there are over 200 and, you know, to get all those teams to agree to changes seems really difficult. So I guess one idea I would put out there is would we benefit from having a smaller top division for men's soccer? Wow. Same. Well, I mean, you know, with, with financial budgetary considerations suddenly becoming important, that, that's what you may end up getting, I suppose. Um, you know, that may well work in its favor. In terms of, you know, what I see as a future of college soccer, listen, until they resolve what I take to be the key issue of them ignoring, and I'm using the word ignoring because I do not see that this could happen accidentally, them ignoring or deliberately omitting or keeping away from them the Latin influence in the game. They're not going to offer me anything that I can make use of outside of college soccer. They are uh, a, a, an activity and presumably some sort of law unto themselves at that point. And they should not be surprised that, if, that, for instance, the United States Soccer Federation doesn't want any part of them. The United States Soccer Federation is an adjunct of FIFA. Mm -hmm. And if they start enlisting teams that don't play according to FIFA rules, FIFA is going to object. And uh, they just wouldn't be able to do it. I actually, Paul, I see that. I see, you know, I think with the COVID situation, the pandemic that we're going through right now, there's an opportunity. Maybe something happens because football well, programs and, are and so expensive. Another dawn. What's that? Another false dawn. It may well be. Uh, so well, I've, you lived, know, I've lived through too many of these. To, I know, I know. But to, I also to, think. To take uh, them seriously. I, no, I really, you, there comes a time when you think, you know, the hell with it. I've lived through this two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven it, nothing ever happens. Uh, I know. Which, I, I'm but not wait, sure that anything's going to happen on this one. Well, we'll let, we'll let, and this on a, on a sort of a positive note, because I think with your, you know, you've, you've come back to the point of the Latin player in the United States. And it, I, it's and a test case for me. Are you going to do it or are you not going to do it? Right. If you're not going to do it, you're, you're, not playing, you're not playing the whole game. You're missing out. You're missing Italian opera out of the history of opera. It cannot be. 
Right, but I see that as an American strength because we have a large Latin community in this country and so it has been untapped and perhaps they can be partially the saviors to this uh, uh, American version of this game that we can improve upon. Uh, Paul Gardner. It would. Uh, Paul, uh, boy, you know, again, happy birthday to you. And thank you for all the articles. We were talking about it before we got on air about, uh, you know, going way back, the articles that we read. I would run down to, uh, you know, my college mailbox, my mailbox at home, get my Soccer America and start reading about it. And uh, you've you've uh, traced its history all the way along. And uh, we really appreciate it in soccer. Like I said, whether we agree or disagree, uh, you have a passion for the game. You've covered it. Uh, this award-winning journalist, and uh, so nice to have you on the show. And I got to tell you, my uncle Jimmy, who uh, I think turns 89 uh, this uh, November, he oh, yeah, has not man. he has not missed an opera in New York City. He lives on the Upper West Side. He has not missed an opera in 40 years. Well, so. good luck to him. I mean, I stopped going because I couldn't afford it. <laughs> you can, well, well, maybe he should take you next time. We'll, we'll I'll check well, it's that a, out. It's, huh? an, it's an elitist activity, and I don't. I honestly don't approve of elitist activities, so my opera is um, <laughs> is limited to uh, well. I, I've got a huge pile of CDs. I'm I'm t- I'm now told that CDs are way out of fashion, and I shouldn't have those for some reason. No, who um, knows? You can't keep up with it all, Paul Gardner. I can't. Uh, That's true. I from can't. Soccer America, thank you so much for joining us on Over the Ball, and we'll talk to you again. Keep up uh, the great work, my friend. Okay, listen, it's been a pleasure. Good luck to all of you. All right, guys. Great to uh, to talk to Paul. I mean, the man's a walking encyclopedia about yeah. American soccer. Like I said, uh, Sam, you're a youngster, but Grail and I, we've been reading him for years and years. I felt I felt badly about playing college soccer after having a conversation with him. I was like, oh, my God, what a misstep. I played college soccer and I got an education. I should have done it differently. <laughs> uh, I should have played basketball. Well, the thing is, you know, even like I said, when uh, – when I was in the pros, I would say the English guys, none of them were educated. They all dropped out of school. At they 15. Were like 14. Yeah. yeah. So it was like, I said, this is where American soccer can use college soccer as a, a springboard, but it's not been, just hasn't been one well in this country. You can't play two and a half months of a season, you know, limit the training and, um, you know, but here we get an education. That's supposed to be the driver. It's a, it's a, yeah. it's a good thing. But I found it anyway, interesting it just, yeah, thinking about his, his comments about, you know, the ignoring the Latino game in this country. And, mm. you know, I, I don't know. I don't want I, I can't really speak to that. But I will say the way, you know, we've sort of changed the rules and yeah. sort of adapted soccer at the college level seems to pretty, be pretty anti-Latin, for lack of a better term. Um, you know, the substitution rules, the way no one calls any fouls. I mean, it's all like strength, speed, you know, um, it's, it's so. I'd like to see that, Sam. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see a lot more calls. We talked about this, uh, with, uh, with Macnick about the MLS, you know, where if you, if you call it early and, uh, you know, it's like playing pickup basketball, if you're playing and, and guys are really fouling each other it's not it's it's no fun it's not the game no i mean we at at, at umass i mean it was our you know not very not too veiled strategy to try to get long throw-ins and we had like plays to score off these long throw i mean it was just it's crazy i mean but you know sam in that defense in the the defense of you know what we're even talking about the sort of the naia teams 
where you're just trying to win. And if yeah. you're playing with non, no scholarships, and then every, you're playing against teams that have scholarships, you're just hanging on. Yeah, no, just I'm, not, I'm not criticizing the approach. I'm just, I'm saying that's what that, the rules we have, that's what it leads right. to. Right, you know? right, right. Exactly. And yeah, and, so. and we were, you know, funny, you and I were very physical players in college. But, um, you know, that, that's different than just having 20 guys out there who are just overly physical. And then you've essentially got, you know, like a hockey game on grass at that point. Right, right. And it's, it's not fun to watch. It's not fun yeah. to, uh, to play. No. Uh, you got an update for us, Grail, with the, the NWSL? Yeah, so the NWSL is set to return um, with a 25-game tournament called the NWSL Challenge Cup. It's going to take place in uh, Utah at two different, uh, two different stadiums between June 27th and July 26th. Um, nine teams playing four games each, and then, you know, the top eight teams go through and you have a single elimination. So I think it's, it sounds really interesting. It sounds very well thought out. They've got CBS Network and All Access, their streaming service uh, on board as the broadcast partner. Uh, Procter & Gamble, P&G, and Secret are the sponsors. So they've got everything in play. I'm really impressed. I mean, they've got everything locked in. There's going to be heavy-duty testing for COVID before, during the, you know, you know, during the actual uh, tournament itself over that month-long period. So uh, good on them. I, I, yeah, I think you know, I think those sponsorships, template. Grail, and you probably speak better to this. It seems like it's uh, because of the World Cup win by the women and the, the higher visibility and uh, things as they move in. They've got some sponsors now. So, yeah. Uh, so all good. So, uh, Sam, what are we going to do? Are we going to check out games we're going to watch this weekend? Well, we gonna, league, or yeah. should we – what else we got? I got a little quiz for you guys that um, I've put together. It's about kit manufacturers, you know, jersey right. makers. Yeah. You have a number two pencil grill? or. So I'll, I'll just explain a little background. Watching the Bundesliga the other day, which I have not watched a lot before, um, I was surprised to see some of the jersey brands that were out there. Um, huh. For example, there's a team with a jersey made by Lotto, the Italian sure. company, when there's sure. not one team in Serie A sponsored by Lotto, which yeah. I thought was interesting. So it got me curious about, you know, kit makers across the big five soccer leagues, globalization, authenticity. And they all change, by the way, every few years. So it's tough to keep up. It is. So this is this season only. I've made okay. a quiz for you guys. So yes. uh, we're going to start. Oh, I'm going gonna, gonna to suck at this, man. I'm telling okay. you. We're going to start by going league by league. So which jersey maker do we see the most in the Premier League? I would go with uh, it's either Nike or Adidas, but I'm going to go with um, I'm going to go with Nike. Kevin? Yeah, I'd say Nike, too. Yeah. All right. It's actually Adidas with six oh. clubs. Um, what is number two? Nike. Puma? Puma? Got to think domestic. Umbro with four Umbro. teams. Really? Oh, yeah. Umbro, Umbro has more than Nike? Umbro has more than Nike. Wow. That, they that used to be much, me. They used to be much bigger here, Umbro. Well, yeah. Umbro was big there. And then also, let's not forget Admiral. Remember Admiral? Yeah. yeah. None, no. none of those. Was, they did How about, hey, Grail, here's one for you that Admiral Sam will never know. Kids. Yep. Uh, remember Doss? Doss sure. Boots? Yeah, Max Doss. He was on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. He had these and Sam, how boots. about Sam, how about Diodora? Diodora is not going to get a mention throughout. I have, a Diodora, I have a Diodora uh, jacket still. Really? Yeah. really I played, I I played in the indoor league on Diodoras. Yeah. yeah. All right, yeah. so let's jump to the Bundesliga now. Which jersey do we see most in Germany? I'm going to say Adidas. Adidas. 
Okay, the answer is actually Nike with five teams. Okay, oh follow-up question. How many Bundesliga clubs are sponsored by Adidas or have their jersey made by Adidas? I'm going to say seven. Well, no, because Nike's number one with five. So. <laughs> oh, oh, I didn't hear, no, I'm sorry. I didn't hear you say, oh no, no, I didn't hear you say I, I missed sure. you. Oh, okay. I did not hear you say five. Hey, Sam, math is not his best no, I'm gonna go. I'm going to go with I'm going to go with three. Okay. Yeah, sure, three. Yeah. Okay, there's actually only one Bundesliga club sponsored by Adidas, and that is Bayern. I found that. Oh very my old. God! They're putting yeah, well, all their money in one basket. Sam, there, maybe man. we'll have to look in that. Maybe that's an exclusive. Uh, it could be. Could be. Yeah. Um, okay. Which jersey do we see most in La Liga? And this is a tie, so they're two. You know, most. Uh, I'm going to go with Puma for La Liga. Okay, you you can give me another one if you want, because it's a tie. Puma Adidas. And, and Nike. Kevin? Adidas. And? And, and uh, Adidas and Nike. Okay, that's, Nike that's like is bet. one, correct, with four okay. clubs, but you, neither of you guys said number two. I don't think you're going to get it. It's actually the Spanish company, Homa. J-O-M-A. Oh, I wouldn't have gotten Homa. Okay. okay. So they're up there, too. So which jersey do we see most in Serie A? <laughs> oh, man, the Italian League... Uh... I'm going with I'm going with Puma for Syria. Okay, Kevin. Puma's just that's because your friend, isn't he? No, your no, no, buddy. no, 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 no. He doesn't work there anymore. Um, I don't know. I'd say uh, Adidas. Okay, it's actually Macron, which is a Italian brand that's sort of more recently got in. They actually make the jerseys for the refs in the Champions League now too. Okay. So there are six Serie A clubs sponsored. Macron. I thought he was a, I thought he was a, uh, he led France. Macron. Yeah. <laughs> he's so, a shirt dealer too. All right. Rounding it out. What jersey do we see most in Ligue 1 in France? Ligue 1. Oh, what's that? Le uh, Coq Sportif? Uh, they, no, they've gone away, haven't they? <laughs> they have. They were the French national team. Um, I'm going to go with Nike for them. Adidas. Okay, that's actually Puma with five. Points. Oh God! So Puma finally on the board. I'm doing terribly. I'm awful. All right, so now looking at the big picture across the big five European leagues, which is 98 clubs, which jersey do we see the most often? We should gonna, know by just I'm, our I'm segmented with, I'm answers. Go with. It's, I'm going to go with Nike. Like I'm going with Nike. Nike. I'm going to go with Adidas. Okay. It's actually Nike with 18 okay. clubs. Adidas has 13. And then Puma okay. has 12. So outside of these big three, which jersey maker do we see the most across these leagues? Outside of the big outside three. Outside of the big three. So that's so Nike, Adidas, and Puma would be the big three? Yes. Um, I'm going to go with Umbra. God, I, I do not know. Uh, Just guess. Lotto. Lotto. It's actually <laughs> uh, Macron, the Serie A. Oh. They have 10 clubs across the Very five cheeky. leagues. Six Serie A, two in La Liga, one in the Bundesliga, and one in Ligue 1. Um, uh, Macron. Yeah. Bleu. If right, this two, had been Jeopardy, Sam, I, w- I would basically be yeah, making yeah. minus $300 right now. So two Trebek more would be laughing at us. <laughs> two more to go. So which league has the highest percentage of domestic-made jerseys? Does that, make, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think you just kind of gave us the answer, but would it be uh, Italy? Well, do you, are they just the major leagues, or would that include? Uh... No, the top five major leagues. Okay. I feel like I'm taking the SATs here. Oh, my God. So, take it to town, Grail. 
I'm going to say Ger uh, Germany. Okay, it's actually the Serie A. You're right, Kevin. Twelve okay. of the twenty teams have Italian-made jerseys, so six. That's so Italian. Um, Macron has six, and Kappa has four. Which Kappa. Is oh, Kappa. That's yes. the one I was trying to. I was thinking of. Those are the back-to-back uh, -back people, aren't they? Is that? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So right. if they're if they're naked, they're on the back of a, a mud flap on a truck. <laughs> Last question: Which league has the lowest number of domestic-made jerseys? Uh, EPL. MLS, <laughs> the lowest amount of domestic-made jerseys would be. I'm going to say Premier League. I'd say uh, British League. Okay, no, it's actually the French oh. League. With just one of the twenty is uh, made by a French company, and that's Le Coq Sportif. The oh, EPL has Sportif. four out of twenty, so okay. they're pretty low. Liga yeah. has six out of twenty, and Bundesliga has seven out of eighteen. So, tell us one, Alex. I gotta get up uh, to speed on Macron. I, I, they've been a little, they've been yeah. off my radar, Sam. Yeah, it's a cool. I, I like them. Yeah. I think they're a neat brand, yeah. not just because they're Italian. Uh, nice. Well, good stuff, right. man. We love that. Is that Sam. it? Well, yeah, that's it. Yeah, we love these quizzes like more. God, I totally embarrassed myself. Well, I, I think I would have gotten uh, most of these wrong too. I thought there were a lot of surprises. Well, the other thing is within clubs, Sam, they change. You know, like uh, New ba um, Liverpool is going to go from New Balance to Nike. I think that's their next one. Chelsea used to be Adidas, and now they're Nike. Yeah, everyone jumps all Right? Around. I mean, every three to four years, right? It's yeah. crazy. All right, good stuff, guys. Uh, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Soccer American, Ticket IQ, and also our guest, the great Paul Gardner, uh, talking about college soccer. Guys, uh, enjoy your weekend. Stay safe. We'll talk to you next week on Over the Ball. See you, everybody.